0: i had this fear, you know, I've been uh, speaking for a living for the last 10 years. You know, I if that would be a day that I get sick right before service. What would I do? And at 6.30 this morning, I thought, I guess I'll get my butt out of bed and go to church. So what we're going to do is if sometime during the message, I end up getting sick, uh, we actually have a survey that we're going to do today anyway at the end of the service. We'll move that to the middle of the service. And uh, really what we'd like to do is get feedback on uh, just things in like the 9.15 service, 10.30 service things that are going well, uh, things you like. You know, uh, excellence is very important to us. You know, our vision here as a church is to help people comfortably connect to God through the Bible and through a community of growing Christ followers. And one of the ways we try and shepherd well is we try and get feedback from you, and we value that. And this is kind of an instrument we're going to use to get feedback, and please give us feedback. Tell us the things you like, the things you change. Obviously, we can't do, you know, people sometimes will have different opinions, but we want that feedback. It's our way of finding ways that we as a church can serve you better, honor you better, find ways in which we can create programs and create environments where you feel like you can grow and also you feel like you can invite your friends with. So that may happen at the end of the message. It may happen any minute. We don't know, but just wanted to prepare you on that. Well, I'd like to invite Don to the stage. This is our last week for Book by Book. Can we just thank Don? This is his last week. All the work he's been doing. The book of 2 Samuel, we've been covering the books of the Bible kind of one at a time. The book of 2 Samuel is a roller coaster. It is a roller coaster of highs and lows and mountaintops and valleys. It's a giant soap opera of David's life. There's treachery, there's betrayal, there's murder, there's envying, there's deceiving, there's kind of sneaking away going on. It's an unbelievable soap opera that happens in this book. If you remember... In 1 Samuel, we are introduced to David, and David, the shepherd boy, David who killed Goliath. But in 2 Samuel, something has happened. David is about to rise to the kingdom. He's been chased around all through 1 Samuel. The king, uh, Saul, kind of the crazy guy, had chased him all up and down the fields. But in 2 Samuel, it's finally his rise to the top. It's his rise to power, his rise to fame. But something happens halfway in the book. If you read the chapter headings in your Bible, it says David conquers. David wins. God is with David. Chapters 1 through 10. It's more and more of God doing incredible things through David's life. And something happens in chapter 11 that changes all the titles in your Bible. Chapter 12 on is treachery, betrayal, pain, heartache. And the message of 2 Samuel over and over is this. Never take a time out in your walk with God. The stakes are too high. When we begin to coast... When we begin to kind of, kind of get lazy about our walk with God, something happens. And often the people around us, our families, our neighbors, our friends, those who we have influence with, end up being the ones that take the pain. And that's what happens in David's life. You remember David's been chased up and down the field. Well, King Saul, if you remember where we ended up in 1 Samuel, King Saul has kind of got this battle and his sons had just died and he pulls out a sword and he's about to kill himself. And the servant says, oh, don't do that, don't do that. He says, please help me. servant says, no, I can't do that. So Saul ends up killing himself. And that's where the book ended. Well, that servant took the crown, literally the crown off Saul's head, held it in his hand and brought it. And in his hand, he held that crown and he walked it up to David and said, David, here is the crown. It's finally your time. It is finally time that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Your walk with God has paid off. Here's the crown in your hand. And by the way, I'm the one that killed the old king. Now it wasn't true. Saul had actually killed himself, but this servant thought, hey, if I tell David that I killed him, maybe I'll get a little special bonus. Maybe I'll be the second command. Maybe I'll kind of get a raise. David says, no way. How is it that you could not have had some kind of respect and honor the authority of the king? How could you have touched God's anointed? And as he goes to hand him the crown, David says, no. I would rather not be king. I'd rather lose power. I'd rather lose influence. I'd rather lose the riches that come with the kingdom rather than violate my walk with God. And he has the servant punished. That's how focused he was on staying close with God. That even the riches and power and influence of the kingdom wouldn't get him off track. Well, then what happens is Israel gets divided in half. There's twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Israel. One of them is Judah and the other eleven. The other eleven form Israel up north. Judah goes down south. And the crown bounces again from one hand to another. David becomes the king of Judah down here. And up in Israel, the other eleven tribes, a guy by the name of Ishbosheth, I'll call him Ishi for the sake of uh, conversation, Ishi becomes the king up north. So again the crown bounces again to this guy named Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth becomes king and he was related to Saul. So now the civil war is beginning between down here, Joab, who's the general with David, and Ishi and his general, Abner. And the civil war is happening, and problems are happening. So let's start up here in the north. Ishi and Abner have a falling out. Things aren't going well when they're kind of getting the kingdom. And so Abner, the general, says, fine, I'm getting rid of you. I'm going to go and change my allegiance to David. Ishi says, oh my, that's not good. So he goes and says, David, how about we make a treaty and bring things together? Again, David is still not the full ruler of the kingdom. David could have conquered him. David could have killed him. But David said, no, I'm not going to violate my walk with God. David says, let's make peace. Well, Joab doesn't like that. That's David's general. So he goes and chases Abner down and kills Abner off. And ishi has got a couple servants around him. They end up killing Ishi off. There's just people dying all over the place. So the crown bounces from the servant to Ashner to Abner to Joab to Ishbosheth, who ends up dying. That's why he's got the crosses over his, over his eyes. And finally, the crown comes to David. But the guys who killed off Ishbosheth, they come up to David and they say, David, um, we killed off Ishbosheth so that you can have the crown. And they hand him the crown. And David again says, how is it that you would betray your own king? I don't want betrayers as servants of mine. That you couldn't even respect the authority that king was over you? No. And he has them punished. He says, I would rather have my enemy live, I would rather live in a constant state of turmoil for the next few years than to violate my walk with God. And that's what happens in the first couple chapters. Chapters 1 to 4 is the story of the crown bouncing around and finally resting on David's head. Well, David has a decision to make. He's got a divided kingdom, much like the Civil War during the, uh, in, in America. There was kind of a division between the two. And he does something very similar to American history. He moves the capital city. Instead of it being way down south in Judah, he moves the capital city to the middle, right between the north and the south, as a way of saying, let's have a capital that we can come together on. And they conquer a place called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes the capital because David says, I want to bring people together. I want to bring them together in such a way that there's no longer we and you. It's now us. And this incredible walk, this incredible step that he makes, brings people together. But what's interesting is in order to capture Jerusalem, the walls were heavy. He said there's only one way to capture Jerusalem. Let's sneak in through the waterway. We'll come up out of the water and we'll capture it from the inside out. Some things can only be captured from the inside out. What's ironic is that's the very thing that undoes David's life. From the outside he wins battle after battle after battle. But the thing that destroys David's kingdom is the same thing that destroyed Jerusalem. From the inside out, temptation and taking a time out in his walk with God undermine the kingdom that he set up. Well, once he's got the capital city set up in Jerusalem, he says, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark, kind of the God box, and it had the tabernacle, it had the Aaron's rod, it had the Ten Commandments in there. He says we need to bring that to Jerusalem to make this the new worship center. So they bring the Ark, and on the way, the Ark is on its way down. Well, God had laid out pretty clear commandments. Only the priests were allowed to, to bring the ark. They had to hold, have poles a certain distance. It was saying, I want you to have reverence for God. And part of reverence for my box, where I'm going to reside, is it has to, a certain protocol has to be followed when you move the ark. If you remember, the ark had two angels on the top, two cherubims that overlooked, and it was God's wrath coming down on the ark of the covenant. And blood would be put on the ark of the covenant from a lamb, as it, the blood would take the wrath of God and offer forgiveness for us. So that's what happened. They bring the ark, but they decide not to kind of get the priests involved. They decide to kind of have a little bit of, oh, come on, what's the big deal? So they're kind of dragging the the ark on its way to Jerusalem, and it begins to tip over. And as it begins to tip over, a nice guy, Uzzah, he just says, oh, I better help with this. And as it's tipping, God had clearly laid out in Exodus and in Numbers, don't touch the box. Only certain people can hold the poles, don't touch the box. That's my presence." Sinful people cannot be in my presence because my glory is just too much. Uzzah reaches out to stop the ark, to hold it from falling back. And it says, I put this in your notes, Second Samuel 6.6. 6, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the God and took hold of it. Whoa, let's keep this from tipping over. For the oxen had stumbled. Well, you're not supposed to carry it with oxen. But anyway. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark. Now, think. Of, I won't continue reading for a second. Does that make you mad? God, how unfair. The guy is just helping out. Don't make a big deal about this. That's When I read this, I go, God, why would you do this? And I love it because that's exactly how David felt. Continues. David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the place Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah clever name, and he came up with it all by himself. Outbreak against Uzzah. What happened there Well, there was an outbreak against Uzzah? But he's angry at God. It's this honest prayer saying, and look what he does. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Many times we are comfortable with some attribute of God. Maybe we like grace God. Oh, I love grace God. I love loving God. I love patient God. Man, I need patient God. I like long-suffering God because I make Him suffer a long time. I like gracious, merciful God that forgives my sins. But the other attributes of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, those are the ones we come in contact with. We say, yes, I want God to be just against those people. You know, my ex-wife, my ex-husband, my, whoever it is. We've got a list of people we want Him to be just with. But when we come encounter with a new character. God, it can just unsettle us. But God allows for honest dialogue with Him on these things. I had an honest prayer with God last—I uh, think it was three days ago. I had flooded my basement again, second time in two months. I woke up, came downstairs. It was flooded. Spent all day cleaning it all up. And Beth and I were praying. It was about midnight, and we're just kind of—we hold hands and kind of praying. I just kind of prayed out loud this time. I said, God, please, it just seems like we've had one sickness after another for the last couple of years, one kind of tragedy after another. So there's people with a lot worse things going on, but just throw us a bone here. I mean, honestly, give it give some relief. I prayed this really great prayer. I mean, it really was a great prayer. As prayers go. It's 12 o'clock. Please protect my family from sickness and blah, blah, blah. I wake up at 1 o'clock to my daughter throwing up on me. I was so mad. I was so mad at God. I, mean, I just asked for his protection. I just asked him to watch out. I was doing the right thing. God, throw me a bone here. And I had this honest dialogue with God saying, God, I'm angry at you. Why would this happen? And you know, it was one of the most honest prayers I've had in the last couple weeks. And you know, the, the book of Psalms, written many by David, Our stories of us just being honest with God. If God is not big enough to take our honesty, we shouldn't have to fool, fake, pretend we're something we're not. God, I feel this way. I know it may not even be right, but help me in this. Help me experience you in this. Well, David begins to understand that even though we don't fully understand why God's holiness is what it is, he began to, in the fear of God, have a a more respect for who God was, a sense of awe of God's presence. And he said after several months, let's bring the ark back. And now let's have our worship not based just on God the buddy God, God the loving God, but God the holy God. God, you've got to respect this thing. You've got to respect the box because it represents God, holy God, transcendent God who wants to dwell among us. So the ark comes. And as it comes into Jerusalem, they have a party to end all parties. I mean, this is a celebration. And David, if, if music was ever part of a worship service, David, like there would be like a five-minute message in an hour and a half music time. I mean, he just had the, the timbrels and the drums and the guitars and everything going, let's worship God. And it says he took out his outer garment, which was kind of culturally the equivalent of being naked. I mean, it wasn't naked. But he took off his outer garment and he began to dance around. He was just so taken that God would use him As king, He was so taken that God would dwell among us in the ark. He was so taken that God had provided for him and cared for him and taken care of him. He began to dance around. Well, his wife, Miguel, wasn't real impressed by this. She walks out and she says, Who is the king that you think you can just dance around half naked? And he says this, I will be even more undignified than this if it brings glory to God. David's heart was, I'm not going to violate myself to get the kingdom. I'm not going to violate myself to get the crown, to get power, to get influence. And if God asks me to be a fool, I'll be a fool. But I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to be sold out to God. I'm going to do God's way regardless. I'm not going to compromise. This is who David is. And then he makes a snide remark to her. He goes, you know what? If you don't like seeing me naked, you'll never see me naked again. And Scripture records they never have children. So we assume that she never saw him naked again. Well, as that happens, David says, you know what? God's established the kingdom for me. God's done so many great things for me. I want to build a temple for God. I want to build this temple for God. I want to build a a church building, a a tabernacle, a permanent place. I've got this this place I'm staying, yet God's still living in the tent. And God says, no, I don't want you to build it. I'm going to use your son. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled, God's speaking, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. In other words, David, when you're dead, your son comes after you, who will come after from your body, I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. I'm going to have your son build it. And then here's the key. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What he's saying is, your son Solomon is going to build you know, the house for God, but I'm going to establish, David, your kingdom forever. Well, forever, that's a long time. So much so that he's saying the Messiah, Jesus, if you read Matthew chapter 1, it traces his lineage, Jesus' lineage, back to David. Because he's saying the kingdom, the forever kingdom that was promised way back in David's time is fulfilled in Jesus who died and was rose again who reigns on high in the heavens and has set up an eternal kingdom. That's the Davidic covenant. Chapter 8. The book continues. And David is winning and winning. He conquers. He battles. He says, God is with him. Wow. Until we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11, despite this pattern of his life, is when David reaches out, presses stop, calls a timeout in his walk with God. He uses this phrase twice in the passage. I put it in your notes, Second Samuel 11, verse 1 to 3. It happened in the spring of the year at a time when kings are supposed to be out at battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him. David sent other people out to battle, but he didn't go. In all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David was at home kind of bored. He remained in Jerusalem. says it again. Then it happened. One evening that David arose from his bed, he walked out on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. David calls a out. He begins to get lazy. His walk with God, eh, professionally, eh, gets a little complacent. Uh, generals are supposed to go out. I'm kind of past that point. He's no longer taking risks. He's no longer challenging himself. He's kind of beginning to compartmentalize his life. I'm kind of above the whole battle thing. I did the running around for several years. He finds himself lazy and bored and unchallenged, and he takes a time out. A tragic timeout. A tragic timeout that will affect the whole rest of the book. The name Bathsheba isn't because she was taking a bath. Although you might think that. Bathsheba was just her name. She was out there bathing that night. David put himself in a tempting situation. He says, look, I want to find out about her. He finds out about her, and somebody says, actually he says, send me that woman. Isn't it interesting how we have a tendency to dehumanize people? That woman. Well, the servant comes up and says, well, that's not just a woman. That's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Hello. At that point, he says, ding, 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 ding. Warning, Will Robinson. Warning, warning. Whoa, okay. Whoa, that was, whoa. Sorry. Nice to have you in the kingdom. But no. He takes another step. Hey, could you send for her? Hello. Not a good idea. And it says that they slept together that evening. And again, at that point, he could have repented, but he didn't. He gets a call several months later from her. I'm pregnant. Oh, pregnant. What am I going to do about that? He goes, I know what I'll do. I'm going to call her husband, her husband Uriah. Hey, Uriah. He sends her from the battlefield, brings him all the way in, and he comes in with his legion of, of soldiers, and they're sleeping out in the city square. And he says, Uriah, come on in. Man, it's great to have you in the kingdom. You're just such a great guy. Why don't you go home tonight and just kind of, you know, enjoy your wife, if you know what I'm saying. And Uriah is such a man of character. In contrast to David at this moment, He says, how in the world could I go home and enjoy the pleasures of my wife when my men are sitting out and sleeping on the street? I won't go. Oh, really? So David gets him drunk. Hey, have another one. Have another one. Have another one. Gets him sloshed and says, hey, why don't you go home now? But even in his sloshed condition, Uriah has so much integrity, he says, I won't do it. And now David's got a problem. At that moment, he could have said, whoa, sorry, listen, I need to fess up, I need to come clean, things are getting totally out of hand, but every time we mess up and try and cover it up, it only gets worse and worse. He calls time out, calls time out, maybe I can get myself out of this. So he writes the document, by order of the king. He hands it to Uriah, sealed with wax, and says, could you give this to your commander? And it pretty much said, next battle, put Uriah at the front of the battle so he'll be killed, and you pull away. So he's committed adultery, he's lied, he's manipulated, he's got somebody drunk, and now he's signed a death order. Well, sure enough, is killed in battle, and David thinks, I got away with it. You ever have your kids think you got away with it? You ever have those moments you think you got away with it? But see, in due time we reap what we sow. And this is the moment, it's been nine months to a year at this point. So keep that in mind. For one year, David, as a murderer, as an adulterer, as a liar, as a manipulator, for one year he's unrepentant. This wasn't okay a month later. This wasn't a couple weeks later. Over Almost a year from now, David has still not come clean. His hands are still dirty. So God sends in Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes in and says, I'd like to tell you a little story, David. Can I tell you a story? And David says, I'd love to hear a story. What's going on in my kingdom these days, Nathan? Me and God are like this. I'm the crooked one. Yeah, we're doing well. Tell me what's going on in the kingdom. He goes, I want to tell you a story. There was a a poor man living in the kingdom. And he had one little lamb. Oh, just this precious little lamb. And he loved this lamb. And he'd hug this lamb. And it was a pet for the children. It was such a beautiful lamb. And there was so much camaraderie around the lamb. That's a nice story. Thanks for sharing that. Well, then I want to tell you about another guy in the kingdom, David. There's another man, a rich man. He had this big house, and he had this big fortress, and he had flocks. Lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb. You just lamb, 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 lamb. Lamb's all over the place. I mean, you could come up to him and say, how are you doing these days? Now, how's the economy treating? He'd say, not bad. I mean, that's what he would say. Things are just going so well for him. What? Sorry. So he decided, this rich man, that he was going to invite some people over for a dinner party. He invite people over for a dinner party, he goes, Boy, I really need a lamb that we could eat. Ooh. You know what? That rich guy that poor guy across the street, he's got a nice lamb. So the rich man left his flocks, and he walked over to the poor man, and he took that little lamb, the little one that everybody loved. Only had one. And he brought it home and he slaughtered it and used it as a feast for his family. For this this dinner party he had. Well, David's sitting in his throne, and as the story's going on, he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And he jumps up and he says, Who is this man? I will not rest till this man is killed this very day. Now, this is a tense moment. Isn't it amazing how, even though we struggle with certain sins and certain temptations, we can still be judgmental against other people? I'm always surprised at my capacity for hypocrisy. I can simultaneously be selfish and yet judge other people for being selfish. I can simultaneously be incredibly impatient, yet be impatient at other people being impatient. Yet something is built into us, that sin nature in us. And as he stands up and he's angry and he's going to do something about this, Nathan turns and points his finger and says, you are that And in public, we think it's probably public in the courtroom, he says, for Uriah had only one wife. God has blessed you with all the kingdom. David actually took multiple wives. It wasn't what God asked him to do. But God had blessed him with so much. He says, and yet you went and took Bathsheba from Uriah. And at this point, he says, and because it took you a year to repent and you didn't even come clean with this, there's going to be some consequences to this in your life. The sword's never going to leave your house in the same way you wreck somebody's family, this is going to stay with you. And pain is going to affect all the people around you. People that you love and care about, there's going to be a revolt in your family. There's going to be people trying to one-up each other. Because you have chosen to step out of my protection and live in that state, you've walked out of the blessing of God. And the next ten chapters talk about this very thing. What happens? What are the consequences When we look in the news today and we see what's happening with the clergy in particular, and yeah, a person can repent and God is graceful and God is forgiving, but who goes back and helps that church and helps that community and helps those families that are affected? In some ways, when we take a time out in our walk with God, even though God will always restore us, there's consequences that people... How many of us know stories of, I remember when I was a teenager and the pastor ran off with the secretary. Thirty years later, people are still carrying the damage of decisions that somebody made. And that's what happens in his family. As David begins to ponder all these things, there begins to be an internal civil war. One of his uh, sons by the name of Amnon, Amon I mean, Amon falls in love with his half-brother Tamar. And David is just clueless. I'll talk about that in the second service today. So much so that David goes, well, why don't, is she sick in bed? Why don't you go? Or actually, he's sick in bed. says to Tamar, why don't you go help him out? Tamar goes into Amon's room. And he pulls her into bed, rapes his half sister. Well, as that happens, Absalom, tomorrow's sister, Tamar's brother says, "What happened? What happened? What, Dad? What are you going to do about this?" And it says that his dad did nothing. He felt bad about it, but he did nothing. He lost his moral compass. He lost his ability to confront conflict and deal with it. And he thought, "Oh, oh. so he just—I'm ignored. I can't do anything about it." Well, meanwhile, two years pass. And Absalom is angry that his sister was violated. Amnon has gotten away with it. And Absalom's waiting. Dad, do something about this. Do something about this. But he doesn't. So Absalom gets all the other brothers and they kill off Amon. And then he goes running. At this point, Dad has to step in. Although at this point, Absalom's run away. He's no longer in the kingdom. And it says that he mourned for his son every day. But he never went to him. And now three years pass. His son Absalom is angry. Three years of silence. What's going on? Dad, Does good, doesn't care about me. Finally, Joab, remember the general, came up and he says, David, go to your son. Talk to him. Make things right. He goes, well, I won't talk to him, but he can at least come back to the kingdom. So he brings Absalom, this hurt, angry, embittered murderer, comes back and Joab says, Dad says you can stay in the kingdom, but you can't see his face. And now the clock begins to tick, hours, months, three years go by. And Absalom's saying, why do you bring me back to the king if I can't even see him? I'd rather be dead than be in this condition. If he's going to kill me, kill me. If he's going to love me, love me. But let's not live in close proximity with this elephant in the room. So He turns to Job and says, "Job, I want to see my dad. I want to see my dad. Job's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And after several attempts to see his dad, he goes, you know what? Sometimes when you can't get people's attention the right way, you do it the wrong way. So he took out a match, and he went and he let... He burned down the fields of General Joab. Well, now he's got Joab's attention. And many times if our kids try and interact with us and we don't give them appropriate attention, they'll begin to act out and get attention in other ways. That's what happens to Amazon. Dad, if you're going to ignore me, Dad, if you're going to just keep your distance from me, I'll get your attention if this is what it takes. And so Dad comes back, and again, they never resolve the issues. David comes to him, and he hasn't said Absalom's name now in eight years. And he turns to Absalom, and he says, Absalom, um, here, I'll buy you a chariot. And he buys them all kinds of stuff, but they never get to the root of the problem. They never deal with it. They never have forgiveness. They never get consequences. So there's still this elephant. And at that point, Absalom decides, all this anger, I'm going to undo Dad. And that's what he does. He begins to sit at the temple gate and gossip. And you know, if I was in charge... Oh, I'd make better decisions than that. And he undermines his dad's kingdom. And finally he leads this revolt and they come up against his dad. And dad sneaks out the back door and runs away. And Absalom, the very one who had been, you know, disgusted at what had happened to his sister, became the very thing he hated. In order to let his anger and show dad who's boss, he took all his dad's concubines and he went up to the top of the temple on the roof and he slept with his dad's concubines on the roof is a way of saying, huh, look who's in charge now. Pain, heartache, all tracing back to one tragic timeout. Well, David doesn't want to kill his son. Finally, he's kind of knocked to his senses to say, I've got to get things right. I've got to get things right. He turns to Joab, Joab, capture him, but don't kill him. Well, Absalom had really long hair, reminiscent of Samson maybe, just really long. We're going to show a video in the second service. He looks like Bozo, but uh, really long hair. So much so that Joab's got him on the run. And as he's running, his hair, he goes under this branch on his horse. And the tree branch catches his hair. And the horse continues on. And Absalom swings there between heaven and earth, stuck. And Joab is so tired of it all. He's so tired of putting up with David's mess, so tired of cleaning up David's mess. He comes up and here's Absalom dangling there. And Dad had said, don't kill him. He says, I don't care. And he pulls out his spear and he kills Absalom right there dangling from the tree. He comes back, lies to David, and says, David, your son died in battle. And now it's been about 18 years, somewhere between 12 to 18. And for the first time, David says Absalom's name. He cries, he falls to his knees, says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. If only I could go back. If only I could undo what had been done. But you can't go back. When we take a time out, the damage that's done, the people that are hurt, you can make some things right, but some things you can't. David, the time to go back, the time to make things right was when you saw Bathsheba and went, whoa, I should be out of battle. The time to make things right is when Uriah came in and you said, listen, we need to talk. The time to make things right is when your son was saying, Dad, just talk to me. Talk to me. Don't ignore me. The time to make things right is when he burns the fields trying to get your attention. Let's get together. Let's do whatever it takes to bring us back together. Come talk to me. But often we wait until it's too late, until the hurt capacity has gone up too high. And so much could have been saved. So much could have been salvaged. i want going to invite the band to come up as I close. This part of the message. I was listening to the song several years ago, and it really is the heart of conflict. It's the heart of what David and Absalom had or needed. It was those conversations you say, this is going to be easy. It may even be difficult, but I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to own up to the things I did wrong. I'm going to deal with the consequences of my own actions, and I'm going to pay the price to make things right. And David pins this Psalm about this very story. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done evil in the sight. Create in me a clean heart the so band does this next song, I want you just to take a few minutes to ponder. It's a fun song. It's kind of a neat energy song. But the overwhelming message is come talk to me. Who are the people you need to talk to? Who are the people that the divide has grown longer and wider and wider between you and them that God might say today before we go to communion, you need to come together and ask forgiveness of that person.